Well, good morning to everybody out here on the lot. Good morning to everybody that is watching online. Great to be with the Redemption Church today. And before I get started, a little bit of housekeeping, and we're going to just jump right into the kind of the theme of the day. Uh, But the housekeeping is, uh, I think last week, we were giving a little bit of update about financial things and the church building and everything else. Uh, And then with that, just this last week, after three and a half years, we finally received our vesting from the city, which means they said, yes, what you want to do and how you want to do it, we give you a double thumbs up. And so finally, after all that time, that came through. So that's a very exciting thing. Long time in coming, long time in coming, finally came through. Still plenty of other little paperwork things to do, but that was one of the big ones that has taken a while. And then with that, I just want to remind you of something we shared last week, where we have had a very generous individual come forward and say they will match dollar for dollar up to $750,000, all giving toward the building during the rest of this year, the next six months roughly. They will match dollar for dollar. So if you're thinking about where to give and how to give, give to the building fund here so we can get out of tents and into a facility. That would be fantastic. So good stuff all the way around. Now, with that housekeeping done, I want to remind you that we are in a new series not called Chosen Trent. It's called Called. Oh, Trent, your bonus is going to suffer this year. All right, so... Uh, It's so sad, but uh, yes, we were in the series called Called, and with that, last week we started it, and we noted that we are all, as we follow Jesus, we were called out of an old way of life, we were called in to a person who is Christ, and from that we were called for a reason, not simply for our own self-edification, not simply for our own spiritual enjoyment, But we were called for the purpose of blessing the nations. God came to a dude named Abraham, said, I'm going to use you to change the world. And we are still a part of that heritage and lineage. So everything we do is in that calling to make a difference and bring flourishing in the world that we touch and inhabit, the people we interact with, the community that we love. All of that is rooted in our calling. And so today we're going to continue that series by looking now at some of the individual things that we're called to. And today, it's all about holiness. That when we read the Bible, we see that we are called to this radical concept called holiness. And I want us to understand what that is, because I think sometimes as Christians, we throw the word around, but we haven't really stopped to contemplate exactly what it means for us. And so right now, I want to go ahead and pray. As I'm praying, you might think about opening up your app to the notes. There's a lot of notes this morning, as well as a link to some things that would be beneficial for you to read in your spare time. Uh, But I want to go ahead and pray and get us ready for today, because I think seeking and striving for the calling of holiness is absolutely critical, and understanding what that means for our life, I think that's critical as well. So let's go ahead and pray together, and then we'll jump right into it. Jesus. I thank you for your incredible faithfulness toward us. And I thank you for a topic like holiness and that we're actually investigating it. We're not just, again, tossing around the word and we assume we know what it means, but maybe we don't realize the depth of it, especially as it relates to you. We see in the book of Isaiah that you are holy, holy, holy. And that certainly means more than just saying you're pure or you're good. There's a depth of character to this word that I want us to understand and embrace and then live out. And so I pray that you will help us to do that, to uh, own what it means and to do what it calls us to do because that is the calling you've given to us. So Jesus, I thank you for today, for your faithfulness and your grace in your good and perfect name. Amen. 
All right, so in the book of Acts, if you're not familiar with what that book is in the New Testament, it's the history of the birth of the church, right? So it's the uh, followers of Jesus going out and touching lives and making a difference, and you see the expansion of Christianity. And in that particular piece of literature, you see that there's this story where our friend Paul goes into a community known as Thessalonica. And he's there for an incredibly short amount of time. In fact, when you read the book of Acts, it looks like he's only there for maybe three weeks, right? Very small. And yet in that time, God does this amazing work. People are radically changed. It becomes this thriving church, even in the midst of chaos and corruption and even a sense of destruction that comes their way as they are the first church in the New Testament period to suffer persecution from non-Jewish threat. It's actually the community of Thessalonica. They set their will against the church, but it's this really faithful, odd little church that gets launched out of almost nothing with very little time. And so from that, eventually Paul writes one of his earliest letters, 1 Thessalonians, and he's encouraging this church. And this is what he says to them, and I think it's very useful for us. He says in chapter 3, verse 11, May God our Father and our Lord Jesus bring us to you very soon. So again, he had a split fast, literally in the middle of the night, under threat. And so he wants to return. So he says, And may the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow, just as our love for you overflows. May he, as a result of this, make your hearts strong and blameless and holy as you stand before our God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who will come again with this holy people. So that's the way he ends chapter 3. And then he tries to ground this in an application in chapter 4. He says in chapter 4, verse 3, God's will is for you to be holy. For God did not call us to be impure, but rather he called us to live a holy life. Now, in the context of chapter 4, the precise context is this idea of he doesn't want you to be impure in the realm of certain sexual values, but rather he wants you to be holy. And our tendency when we read that is to get very binary and to think in terms of the act of. God wants us to be pure, not impure, in the act of. But Paul doesn't use the word pure as the counter to impure, he uses the word holy as the counter to impure. So when he says, I want you to be pure, it's something not just simple as, or as simple as purity, it's something deeper. In fact, in chapter four, verses four to six, you see he begins to target the problem where he says, I want you to do things in a certain way. I want you to be holy as opposed to using one another, taking advantage of one another using other people for your own pleasure or gratification, which is not true holiness at all. So when we look at it from that perspective, we realize that holy is something deeper than simple purity. In fact, it applies to a lot of things. When you begin to understand that holy is about a disposition, an attitude, a way of approaching other human beings, suddenly the horizon expands because what we see then is holiness is calling us to do something with our lives. It's a certain kind of investment where fundamentally it's not all about us in life but rather it's about the betterment of others. It's about not exploiting others. It's not about using others, but rather giving ourselves to others in a way that is altogether different than the way the world does things. That's the essence of holiness. 
And so that's what we're going to start to unpack today a little bit. And eventually I'm going to give you a working definition of what holiness is all about. But I want to start more basic. Before I say this is what it means, I want us to look at where it emanates from. Because part of understanding what this word is all about is looking at the one who is holy and then from that, grafting that into our lives or maybe even more to the point, seeing how he grafts that into our lives and how we tap into that. And so if you're taking notes with us this morning in our app, I want to start with the very first section of your notes, and that is understanding this first thing. You are called holy by a holy God. I want to say that again. You are called holy by a holy God. So before you had a commission, there was a declaration set on your life by a divine disposition. In other words, it isn't simply that you're supposed to go and do holy things. Before that even starts, you have to realize that God looked at you, loved you, cared for you so much. He says, I'm just going to simply say it. You're holy. You're holy. In fact, in the book of Leviticus, that favorite book that you all love to memorize, I know, God says this, I, the Lord, am holy, and I make you holy. See, why this is critical in my thinking is that so often I think as Christians we go, well, we're supposed to be holy. God calls us to the activity of holiness. And I go, right, but to understand it properly, you have to understand that before you are to be holy, you want to own that you are holy. That he is the one that is doing that in you. You're not doing that for him. He's doing that in you. And as he does it in you, then you spin that around and you can do that for him. But only if he's doing it in you first. Only if he's declared that of you first. Only if he said, this is who you are in your character and makeup. Who you are in your identity. You're not going to understand the rest of it. So what it really entails is this idea of realizing that before I can engage in anything, God must engage this in me and if i am to sustain this it's sustained not because i'm white knuckling it and working hard at holiness but rather i realize that this thing that god has done in me is predicated on relationship that god said i wanted to love you i wanted to spend life with you do life with you and so i've declared you to be who i am so then you can act like i act But if we don't understand that the power comes from him, if we think it comes from our resolve or our strength, we're going to fail. And we're going to fail because ultimately, as we will see, holiness is not about us. It's about others in the name of God who does things for others as well. And so in our world, we want to understand that this is the root of true holiness. We're called holy by a holy God. We are declared holy before we do a single holy thing. And even when we fail, and we will fail big, and we act in unholy ways, he still says, and I am making you holy, and I declare you to be holy, because that's what I do. That is what grace is all about. So it starts with a gracious God who declares you holy, and you want to look to him for all your definition of holiness at that point. Next, that flows into this idea of what we're then sort of meant to do. Right? And if you are called to holiness in your notes, then you are called with a clear agenda from a holy God. I quote from 1 Peter. 
He says, don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. I want you to remember that line. I'm going to read it again. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. Right? He says, you didn't know any better then, but now you have come to be holy in everything that you do. You must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. And so Peter, again, not only quotes this to the scattered group of Christians, but in there, he quotes back to Leviticus again, that favorite book that everybody loves to memorize, right? He's saying, don't forget this God who calls you holy, wants you to be holy in everything that you do because you're connected to him. Now, some things that stand out to me about this is again, it kind of reconnects us to this idea that God is our source of holiness and therefore we do things as a tribute to him. The other thing is that Holiness is contrasted between old and new in this section. And at the core of this, the old way, the unholy way was what? Living to satisfy your own desires. Living to satisfy your own desires. So I really want to try to embed this in our thinking when we're considering what is an unholy life? Is an unholy life simply a disobedient life, an impure life, whatever else? No, an unholy life is you first. That's an unholy life. A holy life is something other than that. And so Peter is trying to ground this in the same kind of ideology that Paul is. When we're self-interested, when we're self-seeking, when we have our own desires, when we live a me-oriented world, a my desires world, a my rights, my privileges, my hungers world, we're contributing to an unholy world. And yet we were called to something different. We were called to something new. We were called to holiness. And so this takes us then to the definition. By definition, according to the dictionary, what does holiness mean? Well, the definition there is the state of being holy. That is unhelpful, right? Like I was all excited this week. I'm like, I'm gonna look up holiness in the, in the dictionary. What's it say? And eh, the state of being holy, ah, useless to me. So I'm like, well, what is then holiness? How does it define holiness? Here it's an adjective. To divide, to consecrate, to set apart as uncommon from common. Now, I'll be honest, that's still not very helpful because it doesn't give me a reference as to what I am supposed to be set apart in relationship to. And here's a shocker maybe you don't realize for some of you. When we read the Bible and we come across this word holy, guess what? Those people knew that word before it ever was like quilled to paper or, or chiseled to stone in the Bible. It was a word outside of the Bible and before the Bible and it still meant uncommon. But when God says it to the people of Israel, he's trying to get them to say, see this idea of, you know what life is like in Egypt, you know what life is like under the pagan gods. Now I want you to be unlike that. It's a contrast of something. And you need to know the something that you're a contrast from to be the contrast. And so this is why so often as we gather as a church, when I define holiness, I use a particular definition that's not rooted in like a dictionary answer, but rather an actionable concept. Right? So I'm always defining holiness. When we come across it, I'm like, here's what holiness is. I'm not trying to give you, again, like this dictionary understanding. I'm trying to help you understand this is what God implies of this concept when we read through the Bible. 
And so my mission then today, knowing that holiness emanates from God, God declares us holy. We're to be holy in relationship to God through relationship with him where he does it in us, understanding all of that. Now I want to motivate us in that actionable plan. What is it that you and I can do every day to be holy and live in holiness because that is our calling? Here's your actionable definition if you're taking notes. The first thing about holiness It's about uncommon love displayed. True holiness is about an uncommon kind of love displayed. Now here's a quick pop quiz for you. Of all the books in the Bible, right? All 66, Old and New Testament combined, which book speaks more often of holiness than any other book? Is it Isaiah? Is it... Uh, Exodus maybe, because it talks about the holy God taking him out of Egypt. Maybe it's Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, and they're all crying out holiness around the throne. We go to all these places, but the place where you see it the most is again Leviticus, that favorite of everybody's, right? It's there that you see the word holy or holiness come up 75 times more than anything else. And part of the problem with Leviticus is sometimes we're looking at all the rules and the laws and the commands and we get lost in it and it's confusing and some of them are weird. And so we just kind of push it to the side. But here's the thing. God is trying to impress upon all of us that holiness is what we see not simply in the applications of Leviticus, but at the core what holiness is really about as it relates to the applications. So let me help us really quick. 75 times he says, this is holy. 247 different ways he applies holiness, all for the singular purpose of what we see more than once in this book. He says, I want you to apply all these uncommon things because I want you to have uncommon love. He says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And he goes on further. He says, do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in the land. Treat them like a native-born Israelite and love them as you love yourself. See, the bullseye of Leviticus is the love of neighbor. It is the first time you will see it in the Bible. Every other time, it's quoting Leviticus. And so all those applications, all those crazy laws are meant to say, you know what? Love your neighbor. If you're sick, don't spread it to your neighbor. If you're tempted to cheat your neighbor, that's not love of your neighbor. If you want to exploit them for your own gratification, that's not a love of your neighbor either. All those crazy rules all just drive back to the principle of true holiness is to love somebody else and don't use them for yourself that's the core that's the essence and that kind of love my friends is actually uncommon in the world i know we all like to think we're very selfless in our love but so often we're self-interested so often we're frustrated at others if they thwart what we most want in life what we desire what we crave may not be a direct person next to you but it's this policy those politicians this group that thing they're getting in my way and and therefore we 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 don't think about loving them we think about being irritated by them standing against them i mean it's so common that's common love right but see uncommon love is you before me that's that's an uncommon love an uncommon love is i think about you just as much 
is I think about me, that I think about how my decision may negatively impact you. And therefore I go, if it negatively impacts you, I don't want that to be my decision, not because I'm bound to something as far as a rule, but I'm bound by the idea of being uncommon in my love toward you by really thinking about you processing your world as it relates to my world and trying to find balance for both of us in love. And what I love about this section in Leviticus is it's not just thinking about one another, the insiders, right? It's easy to be like, oh, well, Christians have to love each other with a deeper brotherly, sisterly love, but the outsiders... God's like, no, man, the, the, the people that have come into the land of Israel who are not sharing their faith, not sharing their ways of life, don't hold the same values as they do. He says, I want you to love them just like you love an Israelite. That is a radical thought. And it was certainly a radical thought 4,000 years ago when it first gets slapped down on the table by Moses, right? Nobody thought like this. The world did not think like, wow, we should really love our neighbors, just wasn't a thing. It was foreign. It was uncommon. See, common love is going to think about my family. Common love is going to think about my wants and desires, my vacations, my retirement. My, that, that, that's common. Common love cares about my friends that I get along with, but man, an uncommon love is altogether different. It's not just about the things that I find easy to love, but more challenging, it's the things I find hard to love. That would make it uncommon. Or maybe those who don't love me don't want my best, and I still love them. That's uncommon love. And here's what's crazy about that. We don't have to look far to see that uncommon love. We just have to look to the one who is holy. Here is a perfect, holy God. You know how you see his holiness? He says, I will let go of my divine rights. I will let go of my divine privileges. This is Philippians chapter two. And I will come and I will be a servant. No, I won't be a servant. I'll be a slave. No, I won't simply be a slave. No, I will be a sacrifice for those who do not love me, do not want me, are not interested in me, but I will do it anyway because true holiness displays itself in uncommon love. The cross is an uncommon love from an uncommon God who says, I will love unlovely people even when they don't love me in return. That is a radical thought. And just so you know, that is the icon by which we all operate. So when we want to drag the standard down and say, no, 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 that can't be holiness. Can't have to do that. That's the standard. Be holy as I am holy. That's what he says. So he doesn't give us a lot of out on this. We want the out, but he doesn't give us the out. Instead, he asks us to rise up to his greatness. Now, the second thing as we drill down a little bit more about uncommon love is that uncommon love is then displayed in your notes through uncommon mercy. Mercy. Now, I won't belabor this one a ton because I think the passage for this is pretty self-explanatory, but Jesus is talking about love in the Sermon on the Plain, Luke chapter 6. And he says, man, you want to love those who love you? Big deal. That's easy. You want to love your friends and family? Super simple, unless some of your friends and family are a little nuts, and then it's tough, but still. But he goes, you want to really get crazy, really be holy, do something different. He says, love your enemies and do good. So we can't just say, yeah, I love my enemies, but I don't do good to them. No, if you don't do good, you don't really love. It's easy to say, oh, I love my enemies. I just don't do much with them. No, he says, you got to do good to those who are your enemies. He says, and from this, you want to make sure you expect nothing in return. So it's not like if you do it for me, I'll do it for you and vice versa. He says, no, 
But if you do this, your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And therefore he sums up and he says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. So if God is holy, we're meant to be holy. If God is love, we're meant to be love. If God is merciful, we're meant to be merciful. And so this means mercy toward your menace or your foe or the persons that you don't agree with or don't agree with you. Maybe it was the people over the last year and a half that made fun of your positions, your thoughts, your ideas, your takes on the world. Like those are the people that you want to be merciful to, right? Those who maybe belittle you or those you're tempted to judge or to slander or to shame or to look down on or to avoid or to mock. All of those people you are to show mercy to because that is the action of love. And that action of love is really motivated by grace and the way grace touches the world, the way grace is felt in our world is that people feel like, wow, that's a merciful person. Even if they disagree with me, they're merciful to me in the disagreement. See, that is holiness. It's doing what is undeserved toward others because God did something toward us when we didn't deserve it. He displayed mercy to us. And so holiness is about love. And holiness is about mercy, but then last, because it's a part of a holy trinity, holiness is about uncommon love displayed in uncommon justness. Not just is, justness. Now, here's why I highlight the difference. Um, justice is very popular today in an unpopular way, right? Everybody's jockeying for the right definition of justice. Everybody's debating what true justice would be in our world. And so while justness and justice, they mean the same thing. I'm not trying to segregate them out. I choose this word justness so often because I think it takes some of the energy out of the debates on the word because there are a lot of debates. In fact, uh, Tim Keller wrote an excellent uh, article and it's in the link in your notes today. The title of the article is A Biblical Critique of Secular Justice and Critical Theory. And some people see that and they're like, excellent, Tim's going after critical race theory. Actually, what he does is says, all of your definitions stink. Everybody stinks. Because the Bible's definition of justice is altogether different than the ways we try to craft justice in our world. And so he talks about four different versions of justness or justice. He says, for some groups, they grab on to libertarian justness, which is about freedom. He defines this as a just society that promotes individual freedom. So if we just promote individual freedom, that's going to be justness. This is contrasted with maybe the liberal view, which is about fairness. And there it's a just society promotes fairness for all. The third group is utilitarian, which is happiness. A just society maximizes the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. And then, of course, in contrast to this, you have postmodernism, which is about power. A just society subverts the power of dominant groups in favor of the oppressed. And so he looks at these four different visions of justness or justice in our world, and they fit a bit like a Venn diagram, right? So picture four circles, right? And for those who are online, you actually get the graphic of this. But you have these four circles, and then you have a bigger circle in the middle. And those four smaller circles overlap a little and miss a lot. And in the same way, what Keller's saying is biblical justice, that big idea, 
There are parts of each of those visions of justice that are true to God-oriented justice, but also not true at all. And if you read through the article, he breaks down how each one of those other ideas kind of misses the mark. It either thinks uh, sin isn't that serious, or sin of the individual is bad, but corporate sin is less possible, or hey, what's good for me is not good for you problems in those forms of justice. And so it's an excellent article, breaking all of that down. And in the end, he says, all those forms, all four forms, fall short dramatically of God's picture for justness. Because all four of those forms are ultimately somehow about protecting these at the cost of those. And true holiness says, I give myself away for all the others. Because that's exactly what God did for us. This is the way we bless the world. This is the way we bring transformation. And so from this, he goes on to define justness according to the Bible. And he has this list of things. I just have them here real briefly. The first thing he says is justness is about community. It's about community. And in that, it's realizing that what I possess is not really just mine, but it's actually at the discretion of the community that I'm called to bless, which goes back to Genesis 12. We're called to bless the nations. And so he uses examples about how uh, a farmer in a community has a field, but God says you can't take the crop on the corners. Right? So you have to leave it. God mandated that. It wasn't like, hey, it's just voluntary. It's like, no, it's required. So there's this sense in which justness cares for everybody and sometimes it's almost mandated because our sinful nature does not always want to care about the least of these. And so that's one of the components of true justness. Another component is equity, according to Keller, that everyone must be treated equally and with dignity. Not just everybody should have the same shot, but in that, everybody should be esteemed with dignity for all bear the image of God. And so that's justness. The third thing is this says, you know what, there's corporate responsibility in justness. There were times where Israel, 150 years later, still was repenting for the actions of their forebears because there's community engagement and community responsibility and a community needs to care about justness, not just the individual. And sometimes it's a recognition that there wasn't justness, even if it's been hundreds of years and you confess that. He says, that's true justness. What's also true is there's individual responsibility. We have to make sure that we have a response of justness, both in when we make mistakes that we make it right. And even if mistakes are made against us, that we handle those right and we don't handle those in ways that are unholy unloving and unmerciful and then last in his list he talks about advocacy that we must have special concern for the poor and the marginalized in our world that all of those things combined make for justness in fact there's a great quote he has in the article from bruce walkie he says this is the core of what it means to be just the just, this is biblical versions of it, the just are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community for the good of the city. We will disadvantage ourselves for the good of the city. That's a way to say this. But the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. It's about me more than it's about you. It's about my wants and desires more than the greater good of what is truly just for a flourishing society and blessing the nations. So in short, holiness is, I care about thee, right? So I care about thee in the same way that I care about me because he cared for me when I was estranged from thee. 
right? So that essence is the essence of our call to holiness. And so I close with this good reminder of our calling out of Micah 6, 8. He says, the Lord has told you what is good. He has told you what he wants from you. And by the way, God is writing this to a nation that he says is unholy at the time. He says, you are unholy. So how can you get back onto the track of holiness? Do what is right to other people. Love being kind to others. And live humbly, trusting your God. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, thank you for your incredible faithfulness to us. Thank you for the fact that you call us holy. And in that, you, you literally are daring us to actually trust you in, in such a way that we would live holy. Like, I think part of the challenge we always have is like, man, if I really live this out, if I was really, truly holy in the way that you describe, I might miss out. I might lose some stuff. I might be taken advantage of. I, and, and, and so we, we have all of the reasons why we don't want to risk our calling here. But as that passage closed, we must trust you. And in that, we must care to emulate you above even our own comfort or provision. And that doesn't mean the comfort and provision is bad, but boy, we can sometimes put it ahead of you. And that is just being common. That's like what everybody else is doing. May we be uncommon and different in your name because your name is in fact holy and we want to wear your name well. We thank you, Jesus, in your kindness and goodness toward us in your good name. Amen.